Welcome to the Disunderstood Podcast. I'm your host, Ella Easton. On today's episode, we are joined by Taylor Winnett, a national team member for the United States Paralympic Swimming. She is a Paris Paralympic hopeful and competes in the 100 butterfly, 100 backstroke, and 400 freestyle. Taylor began swimming at age four and after acquiring a spinal injury and a diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, she began para-swimming in 2019. She is currently the American record holder in the S10 women's 50 meter backstroke. She is a proud middle child with two sisters and a wife to Jarek Winnett. In her free time, she enjoys studying the Bible, spending time in nature, watching movies, playing games, and babysitting. She has so much to offer us in terms of experience and wisdom, and I am excited for you to hear my conversation with Taylor. Thank you so much, Taylor, for joining me today. I have been looking forward to our conversation um, from one swimmer to another. It's always fun to reconnect to people in the swimming world. And I am grateful that you're willing to spend time with us this morning. Yeah, it was amazing just to be connected with you. And, um, you know, just I always hope whenever I share my story that it can help other people who have been through similar struggles as me. Yeah. Well, I'm sure all the wisdom that you're about to impart on us will definitely um, touch some of the listeners, whether they're, you know, living with a similar condition or um, managing something challenging in life. I think whether you have dysautonomia or not, this is um, a space that is empowering in a lot of ways and allows people to to think about how they are not alone going through whatever they are going through. Um, but I would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience, what brought you to this greater um, community, not just the disunderstood community, but the broader um, chronic illness and disability community? Yeah. So it all started the day I was born. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, Growing up, I was a swimmer. I started swimming when I was four and I just kept getting injured. And it drove me nuts because I, it was under the assumption that I wasn't obeying doctor's orders. I was not being, you know, vigilant with my physical therapy programs. And so my doctors and my physical therapists were kind of just like, Taylor, are you doing your exercises? You keep getting injured. And I was like, yeah, you know, like I'll admit I was a little lazy as a teenager and middle schooler, but um, I wasn't like going out of my way being like this daredevil, but I just kept getting injured. And it kind of all came crashing down when I was 17. I had a series of accidents. And I actually fractured my L5 and my spine. And I also herniated two discs. And after that kind of life altering injury, I spent about a year on my parents' couch. I, um, I decommitted from swimming in college. So I quit my high school swim team. I dropped out of high school and had to do online school. And I just really was very lost and very, very depressed. And um, I noticed after trying to kind of get back, you know, let's just try to go to the mall or I'll drive to the dog park and just sit there. I was having a lot of issues with fatigue 
and dizziness. And it was just weird. Like I, on my worst day, I slept like 16 hours. And I remember my mom was like, I was kind of worried you like died, but like I saw you were sleeping, so I didn't want to wake you up. But um, I just was really, but my life as an athlete for like 13 years just changed. And I just couldn't really do anything. All I did was rehab for my back and kind of just lay on the couch and sleep. And as a part of that process, I um I gained 35 pounds about and um I didn't do any physical activity. And when I went to college, I just could not make it to class often. So I actually had services through disability support services at my college where I was allowed to skip class to sleep. I had other accommodations for my physical disability, but um, I was just like, what is happening to me? And a part of my process after I broke my back is they looked through my medical records and they were like, okay, um, something's up. So I went to Johns Hopkins and saw a geneticist. And through that process, I was diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I remember bringing up with her my fatigue, like the fatigue, the dizziness, like my legs were turning purple and red when I would stand. Like it was just weird. I love to take baths. I couldn't really do it anymore because I would just feel like something's wrong. And so they recommended I go see a cardiologist. And through that process, I was diagnosed with POTS, which I know a lot of you are probably very um, familiar with. And but through that process, I remember just thinking, you know, like, is this anxiety? Is this depression? Because um, I did have some psychological conditions after breaking my back, just with my self-image and all that stuff. And then also living in Maryland, a part of me, I did some of my own research and I reached out to people through Instagram in the chronic illness community. And I had been bitten by a tick a year earlier. We found a tick on my head, so we couldn't tell, you know, the rash with Lyme disease. So that that was another avenue, too. I was like, maybe I have Lyme disease. And um, through the process, I was diagnosed with POTS. And I also think some of my um, fatigue was caused from my depression. Um, because throughout the years, as my mental health has gotten better and then my kind of treatment protocol for POTS, that has gotten better. Um, I still get dizziness and stuff, especially I love to take baths, but I got to be really careful. Um, but my fatigue has gotten a lot better. And then over the last four years, I've gotten into para swimming, which is swimming for people with disabilities. And overall, my quality of life has gotten a lot better. So, um, that's kind of just like a big, quick umbrella synopsis. But um, yeah, so since I, I'm 24 now, so since I was 17, um, I broke my back. I was diagnosed with POTS, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos. Um, I was tested for vascular EDS because I perforated my duodenum. And thankfully that was negative. But um, it was just weird. Like I remember when I got my diagnoses for POTS and EDS, I... um. I went in my car and I just like bawled my eyes out because I was scared. Like I have a disease, you know, that's not going to go away. Like this is, I was born with this basically with the EDS, but also like I felt such a sense of like relief, like so many aspects of my life make sense now. 
like why I got injured all the time, why, you know, my legs do this weird thing. And it just like all came together. And ever since then, it's kind of just had me have such an appreciation for the medical system we have, even though it does have many flaws. But like, I feel lucky, especially as a young woman, to have had people listen to me and, you know, I don't know, validates the right word, but kind of like a firm, like, hey, you know, like, we're going to help you, basically. So it was just a lot over, you know, my young adult years. But yeah, it's all good now. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot to unpack. Um, I would love to hear about... I mean, I have so many questions, um, but first I would love to hear how you got reintroduced to the sport of swimming after you had this like life changing injury. In addition to these um, diagnoses that, you know, often hinder people for quite a while from either exploring new things or, um, you know, allowing them to push themselves. So I would, you know, be interested in hearing um, how you ended up in the position you are now, which is um, a para swimmer. Yeah. So a little over a year after I broke my back, I started college at Loyola University, Maryland. And the swim coach there, Brian, honestly, he, I cannot praise him enough. I'd never formally swam under him, but this man has helped me and advocated for me in so many ways. And like, just people like that out in the world really warm my heart because like I was just a random recruit who he accepted into the program and then I became disabled, but he still cared about me. You know, he didn't have to do the things he did, but he did. So when I went to Loyola, I did not really go to the gym because it was really triggering for me. Like I swam for 13 years and after my back, my pain management doctor, I asked him like, okay, like what's the timeline for me to get better? When's my pain going to stop? When can I swim? And he kind of just looked at me and he's like, um, you're going to have issues like the rest of your life. Like you're going to be in pain the rest of your life. And I don't think you're going to be able to swim competitively again. And so I accepted that and I kind of just gave up on being an athlete. So I was like, well, Dr. Lee said I can't do it. And so when I went to Loyola, I was still doing rehab for my back at Hopkins. And my rehabilitationist, I come in one day and she's like, you talk about swimming a lot. Why don't you do it? And I was like, well, um, you know, my, my pain management doctor said with my pain and my issues, I can't do it anymore. And she's like, um, you can swim. Like, it's okay. Like, I was really scared because almost everything made my pain worse, like walking, if I didn't sleep the right way. So there was an aspect where I was afraid I was, like, hurting myself because, like, I'm used to pain is damage. So, like, when I sublux or have an injury with my Ehlers-Danlos, usually if I keep swimming through that pain, I'm making it worse and I'm damaging it. So I kind of had to rewire my brain with chronic pain, you know, like, it's going to be there, but it doesn't mean I'm like hurting myself. And that was really weird for me to like kind of piece together because she tried to explain to me. She's like, it's going to hurt in the moment, but I think overall you're going to feel a lot better, like just emotionally, physically. So I remember 
I go in the pool and I think the first day I was just going to try to swim like half a mile or something. And, you know, right now I swam almost a 10K yesterday. So like my life is very different now. And I started going there. I had crutches um, and I wouldn't kick or do flip turns. I would just do my arms. And Coach Brian came over one day and he's like, hey, um, you know, I remember you telling me you have a spinal fracture and I've seen you swim. You know, like I can tell you're disabled, basically, like in the nicest way possible. Um, have you thought of Paralympic swimming like that could be an option for you? And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, and I had no idea it existed. Like, I remember I watched like the Olympics growing up. I remember I watched Beijing with Michael Phelps. I was at a swim meet. We were in a hotel watching it. I didn't know the Paralympics existed until I became disabled. So that kind of like shook my world in such a great way. And Loyola also has turned out some very, very um, accomplished Paralympians. So Brian knows a lot about para swimming. And so I began looking into that avenue. And a part of Paralympic swimming is you have to get classified. And what that means is you have to have a disability that the IPC considers to be like a valid disability. And I mean that respectfully. Um, there are certain disabilities they don't consider to be eligible, which I disagree with. But as a current swimmer, you know, like I have to be accepting of the current parameters they have but that doesn't mean we can't make it better um so for example a couple diseases they don't consider to be disabling are ehlers-danlos syndrome um conditions that cause primarily just low muscle tone and cystic fibrosis which i personally think cystic fibrosis 100 percent affects your ability to be an athlete because your lung capacity but they do not consider any kind of disease affecting lung capacity to be a condition um, which is a different story. So I went through to get class the first time. And part of it during classification for a disability like mine, where I have um, muscle weakness and also my range of motion in my spine is not what it used to be, is they do some table tests for you. And my first time I got class, my dad and I drove eight hours from Georgia or from Maryland to Georgia. And the first couple years after my back, like I really struggled sitting more than half an hour, which with my POTS was a unique struggle. And then with my leg weakness, because I couldn't stand for long periods of time either. So like laying down was kind of like my best bet in life. Mm -hmm. But um, we get there and I like can barely walk. I'm in so much pain from just sitting all day. And so the classifiers decided like, hey, you know, you're pretty soon after your injury. They usually want you more than two years out. And your pain is still not very well managed. So we want you to do more rehab um, just to make sure you're physically not going to improve a lot. So that's kind of an issue in para swimming. So you get people with fresh injuries, especially like brain injuries and spinal injuries. They classify them and then they get better and they class up. So they want to try to make sure you're like fair where you're at. Um, I was disappointed and upset, but, you know, I went home. I did more rehab. Um, some more injections in my back for pain management. And then they sent my file just to be approved that they could differentiate my leg issues from the spinal injury and the Ehlers-Danlos. Because that's another issue. I've talked to a lot of athletes who have only Ehlers-Danlos and they've messaged me on Instagram like, I want to do Paralympic sport, but, you know, they don't consider me to be disabled. What do I do? And with the current rules, there's really nothing you can do. And 
I personally think it should be taken on a case-by-case basis. Everybody, I know some people with Ehlers-Danlos you never would have known. And I know other people with EDS who can't walk and use wheelchairs. So that's my little soapbox on that. But um, I went and got nationally classed and I was a 10. So for para-swimming with disabilities, you're on kind of, you're given a number between one and 10. So 10 is the least disabled. And I swim a lot with girls who have, you know, they they were born missing a hand or they have a leg amputation below the knee. Um, we have some girls with cerebral palsy, um, brain injuries, and then I've seen a couple spinal injuries who can walk like me um, who are 10s. But um, yeah, so that happened. And at first I was defeated in a way because... S9s and S10s, in my opinion, are some of the most um, competitive classes. Like, we have the most women. Like, there's a ton of women who are 9s and 10s. And I knew the times I needed to do to be on the national team. And I was like, bro, there's no way this is going to happen. So I was kind of like, I'm going to swim for my mental health and for my physical health. And then as time went on, I started getting more, because I'm just very competitive in certain ways. I started to get more into it, pushing myself harder. And um, I was offered an international classification slot last year, and I got that. And then from there, I've kind of just really put my energy into swimming. And I actually graduated from college and quit my job in order to swim, which in the moment was crazy. Like I cried about it a lot because I needed to go to this swim meet to get classified. And my job would not give me the time off to do it. So I remember talking to my husband. I'm like, am I going to quit my job to go get classified and swim? And I did. But it worked out. Like, since then, I've been to Mexico. I've been to Italy. Um, I might be going to Mexico again in October. Um, I did not make the world's team this year. So I'm going to Pan Ams in Chile in November. So swimming has brought me so many um, opportunities, but it also has helped me kind of like accept that I'm disabled because the first year after my back, or I would say the first three years, um, I was very embarrassed. Like I wore knee-high compression socks and braces. I had a cane or I had crutches. And, you know, I didn't really know a lot of people like that who were like me. And in college, um, I made mistakes and I, um, I I do consider myself to have been bullied as well. But um, it was just a really weird, hard time for me. Um, but it's taught me like a lot of life lessons. And I love to talk about it with other people because like a side effect of my acquiring my disabilities is that I wanted to take my own life. And I feel like if people talk more about like, yeah, I go to therapy and something, you know, that might be TMI. I talk a lot with my spinal injury. I have accidents, you know, and like if we normalize like I faint sometimes I pee myself sometimes, you know, I see a therapist sometimes like I think it would really help people like instead of just like keeping certain aspects of disability like so hush hush because like there are a lot of people like us out there. The issue is we live in a society where we have to mask and hide it because people either judge us or it's not accessible. And it's just really hard to ask for help. Like it took me quite a while to be able to like ask people like, 
could you go grab this for me? You know, and I've kind of become more confident and accepting of that. And it's helped me a lot, too. Wow. <laughs> Your story is amazing. And I truly appreciate you opening up about, you know, the effect that your circumstances had on your mental health. I think that, you know, we as a society are plagued with mental health concerns. Um, but, you know, this is an area that I don't think is addressed um, as often as it sh should be, as you mentioned. Um, you know, having something completely change your ability to um, live your life as you know it is incredibly disrupting. Um, if you don't mind sharing, what were the steps that you took or who were the people that helped you take steps to move forward when you were struggling the most? I think support is something that I love to emphasize here in this community because you can't you know, go through all of this alone. Um, so I'd be interested to hear about your support system and and who was it that kind of lifted you up when you needed it? Yeah. So I'll be honest, um, a lot of my memory from like my senior year of high school to I would say like my sophomore year of college is pretty clouded. Um, I think part of it was just the trauma of what happened to me and then with the depression and just my health issues in general. But um, something that really strengthened as a part of becoming disabled for me was my faith. Um, so I'm a Christian and kind of just like connecting with God really helped me in a lot of ways because it helped me realize, you know, I do not need to be validated by society. You know, like me, I do not need to seek approval from other people. And as long as I'm, you know, being a good Christian and a godly woman, that's really what matters. And sometimes society's values doesn't always align with that. And um, I feel like the internet, <laughs> I don't know how to say this and not sound like really young but like <laughs> aspects of the internet are awesome and others aren't um but when i first got my diagnoses i you know had to spend a lot of time in bed and i would kind of just go through instagram and i met some para swimmers before i was even classified i was in a group chat and i talked to these other young women my age and um kind of just browsing hashtags online and just talking to other people like hey you know i have these experiences, how about you? Um, but for me personally, there is definitely a downside to the internet. So for me, um, talking about my conditions too much kind of affects me negatively. And I kind of fell into that pit when I first broke my back. You know, like I would be like, I'm in pain every day, like poor me. And like, I don't want to make that sound bad because like, I think it's part of accepting like what happened to you is like I in that moment like I needed support I needed people's attention personally like I needed to know that people cared about me because I lost so many things in my life like I just wanted to know like there are people in my corner and I think some of it too was just the age it happened to me like I was 17 which is a really important 
art of like becoming an adult, like you're looking for your identity. So like, I think some of it too was just like behaviorally appropriate, but like looking back, I did do things that I'm embarrassed of and like, I don't approve of anymore. But, um, my family, like I'm sorry, just bouncing all over the place, but it depends on like the current aspect of like time in my life. So like yeah. my family, um, really really struggled with accepting um me identifying as disabled and like that sounds weird to put but um I had conversations with my dad like after like a year or two after my back I just got my Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis and I was talking to my dad and he was like you know I just don't think it's good for you to like limit yourself and I don't know if I agree that you have Ehlers-Danlos and because he, you know, it's genetic and I, I haven't had anyone in my family formally diagnosed with it, but my mom and my grandma show symptoms of it, but it affects people so differently. It's hard to get diagnosed. And honestly, my grandma, no offense, is kind of older. It really wouldn't benefit her to seek a diagnosis. I don't think she's really interested in it, um, but mine is more severe than theirs. So like having that for surgeons to know when I have surgery, like I need to be like repaired a certain way is really important. Yeah. But my dad like really struggled with it. And I kind of sat him down one day and I was like, dad, like. And I'm like bawling my eyes out. I'm like, I am disabled. Um, Get over it like nicely, you know, like re- as nicely as I could put it. And I was like, it's not your fault. Like my dad wasn't the best at um, he died. So that's why I'm like talking in past tense. But um, he was not the best at like processing his emotions. So like I told him, like, it's okay, like if you're scared or like if you're sad, like I am too. And like, don't feel like this is your fault. Like I had accidents. I was born like this. Like you guys didn't know. I saw many doctors growing up. One of them was kind of like, hmm, like your shoulders are a little weird. This is but he didn't do anything about it. But like the doctors didn't even know. So I told him like, if you're feeling some kind of guilt, like don't, you know, like it just happened to me. And after that, he actually was the person who drove with me to Georgia to get classified. So like he became more accepting of it. He became more educated on it. And then he died almost three years ago. So that was kind of before my international, um, career started and it is difficult for me because he um he died from alcoholism and that has also impacted how I treat my conditions because I know addiction runs in my family and I know that personally how opioids make me feel like I am at risk of becoming addicted to them so I'm very very careful whenever I have surgery um how that is treated but um, nowadays, I feel like my biggest support system is 100% my husband. Um, he does not, he's not the most medically, like, informed person, but um, he tries his best. And, you know, he, um, especially when it's the summer, whenever we go out somewhere, I always remind him, like, if something happens to me, like, remember, I have POTS, I have Ehlers-Danlos, um, you know, this is what you should do if I faint, this is what you should do if I get hurt. And I've been, like, really healthy the last year. I haven't been in the ER for, like, EDS-related issues in about a year, which is awesome. Um, 
So he hasn't really experienced that a lot. And we've had a lot of conversations about it. Like he was not there when I was at my sickest. So I think it's hard for him sometimes to understand like how bad it really was for me because he sees me now and his family sees me now. Like I swim sometimes four hours a day and, you know, I'm very active and they didn't see me when I was like, to even get off the couch you know and i think it's hard for them to understand sometimes because from an able-bodied person like this doesn't really sound offensive but like i've had people tell me before like oh i didn't even realize you're disabled or like i don't really you're not disabled like those people you know like you're not that disabled which like disability is a huge spectrum but um Sometimes when people tell me that, I feel like they kind of minimize what happened to me because like would they have treated me different when I was like one of those quote unquote disabled people who like I needed a lot of help and I couldn't do a lot of things. And, you know, I think our ability to do things as people shouldn't really matter. Like, are you a good person on the inside? Which sounds super cheesy, but like I've heard people say before like, oh, well, they like you know, that person needs an aid. Is it is it really worth like paying taxes for their health insurance? And I'm like, that is a terrible thing to say. Like, I I do not like how certain aspects of society like assigns value to your physical abilities because people forget like, I don't want to be anxious or morbid, but you could be cooking mac and cheese, have a brain in your that brain aneurysm, have a stroke, and you could be mildly to severely disabled. Like, you never know. So when these people I hear talk about, like, you know, health insurance or whatever, like, some people just don't want to work because they're lazy. It's like, y'all just don't get it. And I I do have some sympathy for them because, like, you know, growing up, I was told, you know, the American way, you work hard if you're a hard worker, you know, you won't be poor or if you're a hard worker, like, this will happen. And it's it just society's not like that. Like I know people who work so hard and, you know, they do have a lower socioeconomic status. And that doesn't mean they're like a failure as a human being. It's just the way the world works sometimes. And that was just like a completely random tangent. But like but needed to be said. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry. I like I don't have I've never been diagnosed with ADHD, but I like zoom around a lot. So just the way my brain works but I think that when we have the opportunity to speak about these things knowing that there's an audience that's interested or at least one person that's interested aka me here um you know we want to be able to speak freely and and feel like it's nice to feel like we're being heard and you're like preaching to the choir so um but thank you for opening up about all of that. I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. I'm sure that he is so incredibly proud of you. I can tell just from, you know, you sharing your experiences that the last, um, you know, seven to eight years have like truly shaped you into a different person. And um, the things you're doing, you know, every day now are amazing. And um you know, just recently you were breaking American records right before we were recording this. So congratulations. Um, you. And you said so many 
things that I, you know, we could start a tangent off of all of them. But something that really stuck with me was the conversation that you had with your pain management doctor and that he kind of placed limitations on what you felt like was possible. And I wonder what your perspective is on the balance between being realistic as a doctor and also giving people room for hope in recovery and being able to return to some of the things that they love doing. And where do you feel like it's best to strike that balance? Yeah. So I don't mind saying his name because it's like super common and like it's just easier for me. It's, it's shorter. So his name was Dr. Lee. So like I don't really fault him that much. Um, the diagnoses I had at 17 were like not normal. Like I saw a surgeon last year to talk about having kids and he's like, you're 23. We just don't see these issues in 23 year olds. So like, honestly, like you're at risk, but I can't tell you with confidence, you know, don't do it or do it. Cause like basically be a guinea pig. But, um, so I don't really fault him. Like you don't really usually see teenagers with spinal fractures and herniated discs. I also have degenerative disc disease and I have a cyst. I have like all this crap like going on in my back. Um, so I think for him, you know, he, I just don't think he knew, you know, I'm, when I think back, like, I don't know how many doctors out there really know that like parasports exist, you know? And like, I've thought about like going in and asking them, like, do you know what this is? But, um, usually I will be honest, I do have medical anxiety. So like going into appointments, like I try my best just like not to show too much emotion, to be very factual, because as a woman, um, and I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but like I have seen people be blown off from doctors because of their gender. Um, really quick tangent, especially with endometriosis. A lot of women, like it is not normal to have periods so painful, like you can't walk the first couple of days. And society has kind of just normalized it. And um, it just makes me sad. Like, there's not enough research. There's not enough concern for conditions that impact women majorly. But um, so, yeah, with Dr. Lee, I honestly just think he wasn't very educated on the Paralympic movement. And granted, this was in 2016. And I kind of feel like the Paralympics, the modern age of it really started around Rio. So around 2016, that's when we started getting sponsors and visibility. And like, it really wasn't that well known, in my opinion, back then. Um, but I think it's important for physicians, you know, you have to be realistic. So like, let's say, you know, I had, I don't know, a stroke and it was pretty severe you know, I do not think it would be wise for a doctor to be like, well, if you try really hard, you'll be able to do an Ironman someday. Like, that's not really realistic. But I think it's also important once you give your patient like a life altering diagnosis or a lifelong disability diagnosis, like you need to have resources ready to help support them. 
And they did offer me that. So after my back, it was advised that I do some therapy um, just to help with kind of my pain management, but also just with my other behavioral issues I had because, you know, my parents got divorced and then they got back together. And like, I just had a lot of stressors in my life. And at first I was kind of like almost insulted by it. I was like, I'm allowed to be upset. You know, like I'm in pain every day. Um, Why are you saying I need to see a therapist? Like there's nothing wrong with me mentally. And, you know, like looking back, like a hundred percent, I had a lot of stuff wrong mentally. Because like back then, I thought mental illness is, you know, like you just need to try harder or like you need to be thankful. And so I saw if you had a mental illness, like you, there, there was a fault in your character, which like a thousand percent is not true in any way. Like, do not listen to me. Um, But no, I just thought, you know, like I'm just not being grateful or I'm a baby. Like I need to get over myself. But, you know, I started therapy again a month or two ago because my husband and I want to adopt and I kind of wanted to process things and just get stronger in my marriage to be a good mom, basically. Um, I think therapy is great um, in a certain degree. I think certain therapists, um, certain treatment styles, I'm not a big fan of. But um, overall, like I think growing up, you know, kids get physicals. I think kids should get physicals for therapy because I kind of fell through the cracks. I had behavioral issues as a kid. Um, I've had teachers ask me, do you have ADHD? Like, what's wrong with you? And like, nobody ever thought to have me evaluated. I don't know, whatever. But um, so, yeah. And I think a great avenue for it for doctors is sports because like I'm super biased. I've been an athlete my whole life. But, you know, if you look at America and a lot of the chronic issues we have, um, if we were a, which I still think we're a huge sports culture compared to other countries, but a lot of the chronic issues we have could be improved upon with sport. And, you know, you can do a sport. You don't have to be a Paralympian, like devote your life to it. But I just think, you know, like, oh, we have a patient who um, got a car wreck, amputation. Maybe we should talk to them about parasports, you know, wheelchair basketball, sled hockey, um, paraswimming. And I think that um, sports can help people physically and emotionally, which it's done a lot for me. But um, so, yeah, now whenever I'm on like Instagram or Reddit and I see I'm on a lot of parenting subreddits just because like I want to be a mom soon. And um, even just the other day on Wednesday, I heard a dad talking about his daughter who had bone cancer and he was like I'm a single dad um she just had her leg salvage surgery and she's feeling a lot of emotions about her self-image because she she lost her hair she has a lot of scars do dads have advice for me and I commented I'm like I'm not a dad but I lurk here and I said this is not what you're asking for and, you know, I mean this respectfully because some people it might be offensive to go out with this. But I was like, I acquired a disability and I started doing paraswimming. I've done wheelchair basketball and sled hockey. So, you know, if your daughter wants to interact with other girls her age, other kids who have had cancer, I have a lot of teammates who have had some kind of cancer and had their leg amputated or whatever, um, you, you could look into that. And he responded, you know, like, I think that's a great idea. She loves sports. And, you know, wheelchair basketball could be a safe option for someone going through chemo with a port. Um, 
It just depends on what her leg salvage surgery was because you have to be able to sit in a chair and bend your knee. But there's still other options like archery or whatever. But um, yeah, so like overall in the synopsis, I think it's great if doctors are realistic. But if you have bad news, you should probably come in with some good ones too, which can be difficult. And I, I'm not a doctor. I don't understand the stresses of the job, honestly. But um, I feel like if Dr. Lee went in and was like, your back's messed up forever. But I know you like sports. Here are some options for you. Like, I feel like that would have pivoted my life in a much positive, more positive way in the year after my injury if they did that. Yeah. Even, you know, if you weren't ready to hear it in that moment, if you thought, you know, that wasn't an option for me, I think you'd maybe think back, you know, give it a little bit of time and and think, oh, yeah, this is something that he mentioned and randomly Google it one day and like maybe come upon the idea again. Um, I think that's a great like takeaway, um, you know, providing the support and not just the news, um, I think is really important to consider. Um, and, you know, if, if physicians are in a particular space where they're seeing certain kinds of patients, I think that it is definitely part of the job description to, like, be able to be a healer in multiple ways and not just, you know, under the knife or under the microscope. It's like, let's try to, you know, take care of our patients in the whole sense of the word. Um, but you know, as you're speaking, I'm just realizing how much perspective you've gained. And also, I truly appreciate how open and vulner vulnerable you are with how your perspective has changed and being willing to admit that, you know, at one point I thought this way and my experiences have now taught me otherwise. And I think that oftentimes people are are scared to talk about their mistakes or openly make mistakes. But I think that in order to make the space for people to feel comfortable failing in this in the area of like disability advocacy and learning how to use the right language and, and all of these things, it's important for us that are a part of this community to also acknowledge that like we have not always been perfect in this way either and still are not perfect and are always learning. I think that's really important. So I am truly grateful for for you opening up about that. Um, and I I want to acknowledge that, you know, everything that you have shared, I can imagine people are either inspired by or relate to. Um, so I, you know, I've just been really enjoying listening to you. Um, I've learned so much. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your future goals, aspirations, hopes. I know, you know, you're looking to um, take on motherhood, which is really exciting. Um, and in your personal life and in your career, what are kind of the the next things you're looking forward to? Yeah, so I um, have learned so much in the last two years. Um, so when I first acquired my disability, like I had no idea that it could impact my ability to safely have children. 
Um, and kind of in the last two years, I've just done a lot of like looking into it. And like I said, I am kind of an anomaly with the issues I have. Um, just with my age, there's not a lot of research out there on women who have the kind of spinal cyst I have like before they give birth or, you know, the kind of fracture I have and like herniated discs and stuff. And so I saw two doctors, two surgeons last year, and then a maternal fetal medicine lady. And um, the first surgeon walked in, you know, she opened the door and she was like, have you and your husband considered adoption? And I was like, okay, I know where this lady's going. And um, she was more concerned about the Ehlers-Danlos I have. And, you know, I appreciate her opinion, but it's very personal. She was concerned, you know, how ethical is it to have children if you have a genetic disease? Which I appreciate her input on it, but that's also a personal decision. You know, it's a moral decision. Um, but she also came and gave me like medically, this is what could happen to you if you were pregnant. And so I remember we went to the post office after me and my husband and I'm like bawling and I'm like, okay, like I'm going to get sterilized. You know, I've decided. And then I went home and I was like, I don't want to get sterilized. So we waited. And then a couple months later, I saw the MFM. She was like, um, I have people come in who are green, like gray or red. She's like, if you had vascular Ehlers-Danlos, I would tell you if you got pregnant, you need to have an abortion because it's very risky with your heart. Um, but after I perforated my duodenum, I tested negative for it. So she told me with my back issues, I'm kind of in a gray area. Um, she would not tell me, like, go for it. I think it's a great idea. She's like, we don't really know um, if the weight of pregnancy, what it would do to your lower back. Um, I'm at risk of complications, birth and C-section-wise, with the EDS. So, like, there's just a lot of factors. And then the second surgeon I saw last year was kind of like the dude who was like, well, you're young. Um, you have risks all the time. So if you want to do it, go for it. But like, it's probably going to make your issues worse. But I can't tell you for sure. So like, we kind of just got like, my husband was really frustrated. He's like, these doctors like, are afraid to tell us like a concrete thing. Like, we're not going to sue them. Like, I just want to know. And I'm like, well, Jay, like, it's, it's not their fault. Like, I don't know. I know. I think like, and I don't think I know anyone with Ellers Danlos who also broke their back. And like, it's complicated because I have multiple things. So I've started like looking into adoption, which like I've always wanted to adopt anyway. My first date, me and my husband, actually, I told him how I want to adopt. Um, I want four kids. I wanted two biological and two adopted. And um, I've learned a lot. And I've talked to my husband about, you know, would you want to seek out specifically a child with disabilities? Because I feel very secure in raising like a confident, loved child who's disabled. And we've talked about interracial adoption, international adoption. And, uh, you know, listening to a deed has helped me a lot, too. So if anyone listening to this is interested in adoption, I think that's great. Um, but I also think it's really important that we need to look at society and how we view adoption and how oh, it's not oh, the majority of the time, which was really shocking for me to learn that um, a lot of adoption, you know, comes from poverty. And if someone loves their baby and wants their baby, 
they should get to keep their baby. Like, I think just because you can't afford it, we need to have people to help or things in place to help people keep their babies. Um, But that's a whole different story. But kind of learning about the ethics of adoption was really like shocking to me. Just because like in general, I've, I heard I tell a lot of people like we plan to adopt next year, but we might be moving overseas. So it might be three years. And I've had a lot of people be like, wow, like that's amazing. Like you're a great person. And like, I'm not a good person because I want to adopt, you know, like there are children who need homes and I should not be praised for that. Um, as a society, we should step up and help our kids in the foster care system who need to be adopted. Like I'm not a saint because I want to adopt. Um which I think is hard for people to accept. But like when you have that narrative that like, oh, you're such a good person for saving the babies, like that makes the babies feel like, wow, am I like a burden? Like, why are these people like we don't praise people like you're a great person because you reproduced and had a baby. So like that was really like mind blowing for me to learn, you know, like how can we make adoptees feel better about kind of their self-image and stuff and kind of changing society where like you know just the way we talk about adoption i think is really important which was like a huge random tangent again um but regarding my swimming i have to get classified again next year which is super stressful because they usually don't like to classify um national team members the same year as games because the issue is if you move up a class or down a class, it can cause a lot of like, for lack of better words, drama. So like, say I was the best, one of the best nines in the world and they moved me to an eight, like you're impacting other people making the team now because we can only take three people per event. So right now we have five nines on the national team and if we have a girl get class next year who becomes a nine, who's a little bit faster, that girl just lost her slot. So it's stressful. But um, I have to get reclassed next year. But kind of where I was classed on the bench in the water, I'm pretty confident I'm just going to stay a 10. Um, my cyst, my like leg issues haven't really progressed significantly enough for me to move down a class. But um, kind of next year, at the end of this year, I have Pan Ams. Um, Five is my favorite number, so I want to get five medals, which, like, is pretty um, ambitious. But the way the United States and Canada works is if you made the world's team, you do not go to Pan Ams. So I narrowly miss the world's team. So, like, I'm kind of on um, respectfully, like, the higher end of athletes going to Pan Ams. So my um, statistical probability of meddling is a lot higher compared to... um, some of the like emerging national team athletes so i want to medal i want to get gold and 100 back and then it depends on my teammate my one teammate pulled out of worlds who's also a 10 and she's going phenomenal butterflyer so i want her me and her to get uh gold and silver and then we have a newer girl who just joined the team and i'd love for her to get bronze like i'm going to sweep the podium and 100 fly and then um i think i have a good shot in 2 am and 50 and 100 free are going to kind of be a mix up. Like, I think I'm slated to be fourth right now by like a couple tenths of a second. So it'll be a good race. And then um, I'd love to do a relay. Like, I have not done a relay at an international meet since my back, which like, this is dumb, but 
I can't do relay starts anymore. And like, I used to love doing them. Like my reaction time was so good. So like, um, but uh, <laughs> the things yeah. we give up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, next year's games and I kind of know where I'm at right now internationally. Um, I personally do not think I have medal um, opportunities, but that doesn't mean I can't get faster. But like if we had games right now, um, my goal, I just want a final in a couple events, which I think will be really fun. But um, kind of the way like my body has been handling training, I kind of think that um, after Paris, I might like step down a year or two. Um, I'm not sure if LA is kind of in my future. Um, training in general is pretty hard on my body. And I kind of explain to other people like people like me with spinal injuries or say cerebral palsy or brain injuries, the way we train is different than like an amputee. So, like, if the pool's closed, I can't just go run. But I know some people who are amputees who could run. Um, so, like, I tried to do the elliptical last year. And kind of with the slippage I have in my spine, it caused really bad pain. So, I had to stop. And I physically cannot run just with my coordination. So, like, the elliptical, like, it guides your legs. So, like, really the only cardio I have is the pool and then, like, the arm bike. Um, I've considered, like, stationary cycling, but I'm kind of worried that would stress my back similar to the elliptical but i think maybe not as much but um i'm kind of taking it a year at a time so we'll see what happens after paris um maybe i'll bring my kids to swim meets one day i don't know but i think like in the grand scheme of things like i'm gonna swim hopefully my whole life in some capacity um you know i think swimming i'm very biased i think it's the best sport i think it's a life skill um, and I think it is one of the only sports where like 97% of the population could do it. So like if you're on a ventilator or, um, you know, have a trach, I'm not sure how safe it is to swim because of infection risk. But um, I know people who swim who have no eyes, um, no legs, you know, they had a stroke and uh, most of their body isn't functional. And it's fascinating because, you know, swimming is basically for almost everyone. And I love that about the sport. I think it's really, it's beautiful. It is. It's like, it's a really empowering thing too, which, you know, it's one thing to reap the physical benefits, but I think it's really hard to say that you get out of the pool not feeling better than when you got in it. And um, I think so much more of the population could benefit from swimming and everything positive that it has to offer. So, but thank you so much for the time you spent with me today. I have learned so much about you personally, but also um, feel really inspired and um, have taken so much away from our conversation. And I'm sure the listeners will too. And I look forward to seeing you compete, um, watching and keeping up um, on results and how things are going. And I am so grateful for all of the advocacy work that you're doing, um, I'm sure, in your personal life, but also at a larger scale for, you know, the Paralympics and, and also for this community. So I'm so grateful. And I know that you have a bunch of cheerleaders um, 
now cheering for you. Um, and thanks for being such a, a great example of um, learning and resilience and strength and encouragement. So thank you. I I would not be where I am today kind of without all those people I said in my corner, like my family, my husband, um, my faith. And, you know, I, I hope I long for the day where like we as a society are kind of just like more accepting and encouraging for people with disabilities. Um, and I definitely notice, like, as I'm getting older, that society has shifted. Like, in general, like, I feel like now I do not get na- asked nearly as much in public, like, what's wrong with you? Like, when I first broke my back, all these people, like, what's on your legs? Why are you wearing braces? So I feel like in general, like, society's kind of stopped be- seeing us as kind of like a curiosity and more just like, there's a redhead at Starbucks, you know, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, have a great rest of your day. Have a good training session. Um, I'm sure we will um, talk again soon. And thank you again, Taylor, for for all the time and all the wisdom you shared with us. As always, you can find all things Disunderstood at dysunderstood.com or at Disunderstood on Instagram and TikTok. You can find me at Ella Easton on Instagram. And if you want to share your Disunderstood story, head to disunderstood.com slash contact us. Have a great week, guys.